We are learning daf peiches. We're starting from the bottom words of peizayin and mabez. So we're learning about the case where a woman comes to collect her ksuba. She has the document. The husband claims he paid her, and he even has a single witness who testifies that he saw the husband pay. The halacha is that the woman has to make a shvua before collecting. The question is, what's the nature of the ksuba? Uh, the, the, the nature of the shvua. So we saw in the gemara, it's only shvua darabon and not a shvua daraisa. What's the main reason for this? Because the shvua is only daraisa in when, a, when somebody is, is exempting themselves from paying. But there's no role of a shvua that that we say to, that it allows a person to collect. So it's a shvua drabanan just to make the husband feel better. And because it's a shvua drabanan, it's actually not as severe. Like, for example, she might not have to hold the Sefer Torah, use Hashem's name, so on and so forth. So the Gemara says that, that, that here in the bottom, Amrah Papa, top of the Amrah, he can creatively bring his wife to liability to a Daraisa shvua. How could he do that? He goes and he pays her again. In his mind, he paid once, but now he pays her clearly a second time. Ksuba paying a second time in front of another single witness. Now, he combines the first witness with the second witness. He brings them both to court. And what does he do? He establishes that the first monies were alone, meaning he claims to her, he says, look, I'm going to claim that I paid you twice. What does that mean I paid you twice? Obviously, if I only have to pay you once, that means I'm going to claim that I lent you money first and then I paid your ksuba. So if she obviously can't deny fully she cannot deny fully uh, that she ever paid. There would be two witnesses who know that she paid, right? Because one testifies that, 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 that she was paid once and one testifies that she was paid twice. So there's a power of two witnesses to say that she borrowed money. So she's not going to be able to claim that, that, she didn't borrow the, that, that, that she didn't take the money at all. And, 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 and now, because he's got the second witness that saw that he paid, he paid the, the shvua, um, now he's going to claim that the first monies that he gave her were a loan and that he, she owes him back money that he had lent her. Now it's a question of whether she has to pay him. That's what it's a question of. And the Eid is basically testifying that, he, that, that she owes him the money. So because he, the, the Eid Echad saw the husband give her money. So now will be an Eid Echad that's an Eshua Daraisa to exempt her from paying money to him. Very creative. How can you combine the first witness with the second witness? They're not seeing the same thing. Meaning the basic premise of, 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 of Edis is that two people are being made on the same point. Here you have one witness who's testifying that the husband paid, paid, gave her money once and the second witness who's testifying the husband gave her money again. Then, then in this case, if, what would happen if the woman denied, I didn't receive any payment? So the, the, the witnesses don't combine. Even though there are two witnesses, each one who saw individually the husband gave her money, but since they didn't see the same event, so then that's not Edis. So therefore she still would be able to say, I didn't get anything. And uh, she still has the only a dinder to collect the ksuba, even possibly even a third time. So that she definitely, the husband doesn't want to do that. He gives the ksuba a second time in the, front, in the presence of the first witness and the second witness. So now there will be two witnesses that she's collecting the second ksuba payment. Then he can establish his claim that he thinks he owes that, that, that she owes him money because he gave the first monies as a loan. And again, that would be the role of Eidacha now to testify that, that, that the woman owes him back money. And then she would be taking a shvua to swear that she is exempt from paying him the money. Still, she's able to say, maybe there were two ksubas. Well, just because you saw the money come out twice, that doesn't prove that the first one was a, was a loan and that I owe you money. It's possible that the husband wrote two ksubas, which is interesting. Usually that's not done. But she can make such a taina that there were two ksubas. So therefore, they're, 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 even though it's a rare occurrence, but they're, they're, she can make that taina and she's not going to be against Adam. 
So it's only if the, if the husband had told the witnesses of his intention before making the second payment. If he told the witnesses, he already paid the ksuba in front of one of them. And now she's denying it and he wants to pay a second time with two witnesses so that then he could claim the first one was a avon get a daraisa shvua. So now in this case, um, the original witness is not going to be able to support the woman's claim there were two ksubas. And without any support whatsoever, the, the stam timing that there was a second ksuba is too unlikely to be believed. Meaning in the Gemara's question where the first witness really thinks that the first thing was a ksuba payment. So then if you have the, even, if, even if there's another one, so it just looks like there's two ksubas. So she's kind of supported from what the witnesses will say. But if the husband informs the witnesses ahead of time what he's trying to do, so then the first witness won't support her claim that there was a second ksuba. Stam, she's going to tie out of the blue there was a second ksuba. That's way too unlikely. And therefore, uh, therefore will not... It, 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 we wouldn't believe her and we would assume it was alone and then that's how the husband can bring her to make a shvua de arisa. Okay, continues with the Gemara. We learned in the Mishnah that if a woman collects then she has to always make a shvua that wasn't paid before she collects. The Gemara brings to Nanas, we have a Mishnah and shvua. So, it says that orphans only collect a debt that was owed to their father with a shvua. In other words, they're inheriting the debt here. So they have to make a shvua. What is the shvua? They swear that the you know their father hadn't told them anything at the time of his death about whether it had been paid or something like that. So miman, who, who 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 are they collecting from? When we say they have to make a shvua, if they're collecting from the bower themselves, from the bower himself, It doesn't make sense. The father would have been able to collect without a shvua because he has he has a uh, he has a he has the document. They they can only collect with a shvua. If the father had the document that was owed money, he wouldn't have to make a shvua to collect. Because again, the, the fact that you have the document is a proof that the debt is owed. So why are the Yisumim's rights any shvacher? We're always protecting the orphan's right. Why should their right be any weaker? Allah Gama rather must be saying like this. When the lender's orphans are collecting the debt from the borrower's orphans, there they have to make a shvua. In other words, here the lender and the borrower both died. And now it's the Malvis Yusayimim who have the document and they're taking it to the Loivis Yusayimim. So here we say they have to make a Shvua, just as their father can only collect what he told me with Shvua. That's the idea. So, so, so the, there's basically Allah, whenever you collect from Yusayimim, from the property Yusayimim, you have to make a Shvua before you collect. That's not only true for the Malva, it's true even for the children of the Malva collecting. Says the Gemara, first we qualify something, it's not going to make sense, and we're going to have to change it. Amar Zikom Yusayimim. This is true. That the the Yisumim collect with the shvua only where the where the where the Yisumim say the, in other words the loyves Yisumim say Amar lo Abba Levisi our father told us we borrowed the money but he repaid it Avram lo Amar Abba lo Levisi if the father said I never borrowed the money Apishvili Yiparu then the Malvas Yarshim can't even collect together with an oath we assume that the whole document is just false why because the Lovas Yarshim are is, are saying that their father told them he never borrowed money in the first place something more that makes no sense. Whenever somebody says, I didn't borrow, he's definitely admitting you didn't pay back. If you're saying you didn't borrow, certainly you didn't pay. And, and if you admit you didn't pay, and the, the point is there's a star, we can't forget about that. There's a document that the Yarshim of the Malva are holding. That's proof that, of course, you did borrow. So if anything, their right of collection should be stronger. If you say you, you admit the document you pay back, okay, then it's a question of why would the document be in the, in the hands of the Malva if you paid back? Okay. That's a riot. But if you say you didn't even borrow and there's a document, for sure you're lying and for sure the proof of the, the document is proof that you owe the money. So it doesn't make any sense to say that if the Yisraelim of the Leva are claiming that their father told them we didn't borrow, it makes no sense to say that, there's, that, that they, the Shavuah cannot be, 
use for the Yarshim of the Mava to collect. So the Mar revises, Eli is Marachli Itmar. If anything was said, this is the way it was said. This is true that the Mava is the same collect. Basically, is only where the borrowers, orphans are saying, Our father told us we he borrowed and he repaid. If they say our father told us they didn't even borrow the money, then if we're on Shua, the opposite. The lenders, orphans can collect even without making a Shua. It's that we said if we say with the document itself makes it obvious that there was, in fact, a loan. As soon he says, I didn't borrow, it's as if he's saying, I didn't repay. And since we know he did borrow because there's an admission from the document, therefore it's absolutely clear that it was, it was not repaid as well. And therefore they don't even have to make a shua in order to collect. So the only time where Shua has to be there is where the, the, the Leibis and some of them are saying that their father told them that, yes, I did borrow, I concede I borrowed, but I did pay back. So now, even though the, 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 the Malvis and some has a document, but maybe it was paid, okay, so we say that the Malvis and some have to make a, have to make a Shua. But if the Leibis and some are claiming that there was no Havva at all, the Malvis and some can collect even without a Shua, again, all because they have a document. What was the final ruling in the mission of Frashul Bafanov? Whenever a wife comes to collect, Ksuba, the husband's not around, he's overseas, he can't be summoned to the court. She always has to make a shwa. There's a story of Bissel and Tokia, and he said, because of favor. What does that mean, favor? In this case, we want the men to find favor in the eyes of women. We don't want women to refrain from getting married because they're concerned they're not going to collect the ksuba. So we have to make it somewhat easy for them to collect the ksuba. And that's why we say that. Um, that if they make a shvuah, they can collect even not in the presence of the husband of Bochovlov. For a regular creditor, they can't collect on the property if the, if the lova is not around, even with taking a shvuah. There's no such leniency unless the person is there to defend himself. Basim will not allow a collection to happen. There's a machlekes about that. Rav Amr Rav says differently. If you Bochov, the same thing is true for a regular creditor. We don't have everyone taking his money of his friend. He goes and he lives overseas to make sure he never has to pay back. It's a great, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great trick. Borrow money and then go overseas. And if you do that, you're closing the door in the face of borrowers, meaning you're discouraging a potential lender from ever lending money because he knows it's going to be very hard for him to get back his money because the lover might just go and you won't be able to collect. So therefore, even for a regular Baal we say the same thing. If the lender is not around, you can collect by making a shua. Okay, at the end of the Mishnah, we had a very cryptic statement of Reb Shimon. Reb Shimon says, Whenever she's claiming her whenever, whenever a, a wife claims her ksuba from the Yarshim, so the Yarshim can make a shua on her. If she doesn't claim her ksuba, the Yarshim don't make a shua on her. So the Gemara says, Reb Shimon, ahai. what point is Reb Shimon coming to argue on? What did the Tanakhama say that Reb Shimon is arguing on? What's, what's, what's going on in terms of the dispute? He's going on what the Tanakhama had just said. We just spoke about the case where the husband wasn't around. The wife's collecting when the husband's not around. <clears throat> we said, she can only collect by making a shua she wasn't paid. And the implication was, it doesn't make a difference if she's trying to collect from the assets of the husband for the ksuba or for mizonas. Remember, before she collects her ksuba, she has a right for sustenance from the husband's estate. So either way, she can swear before she collects. Also, Rav Shimon Lameim, Rav Shimon says, no, if it's a claim on the Ksuba, Yarshim Mashminosa, there the Yarshim can make her swear. But if she's not collecting, claiming her Ksuba, what she wants instead is Mizono. She wants to be supported. Then, then in Yarshim Mashminosa, the Yarshim cannot make her make a Shvua, meaning she's not required to swear he didn't live, that he didn't leave her any money for support. 
Um, then in the Arshim don't make her make a shvuah. And what is this question if, if the woman has to make a shvuah for support? The same machlok as from Shemendat Kanakama is what we see in machlok as Hanan and the sons of Kanak Dolan. It's not, it says in the Mishnah. And here we're talking about a husband overseas, Mashamadina Siyam, Vishu Tavas Mizonos. Husband's overseas and he's around, he's, he's not around. The wife says, I need my Mizonos. So the question is, the court is going to go to his property and give her money. But the question is, does she have to make a shua? Because maybe the husband actually left her a lot of liquid cash for her mizonos before he left. So Rechanan says, she's just going to swear at the end. When she goes at the end, if the marriage is terminated to collect the she'll swear then about that, that, that she didn't take anything wrongly. She doesn't have to swear now when she's claiming mizonos. The point is that we're saying initial, deport, uh, initial demands of support are not requiring a shua. It's just at the end, when she comes to collect her ksuba, there, if she happens to possess any extra liquid cash, it would obviously make the ksuba less, and she has to swear about that. But the shuva that she'll make in the end, therefore, the potential for that exonerates her from making the ksuba now um, before collecting the mizonos. So Hanan says there's no shuva that a wife makes before collecting mizonos when her husband is overseas. However, the sons of Quran told them to disagree with Hanan, and they said, No, she has to swear both in the beginning meaning for her support, and at the end for the ksuba. There is a shvuah you have to make for support. So that's what is going on. Rav Shemin, Kachanan, Rav Shemin is saying, like, Hanan, that she only has to swear for, yard, for, for, for ksuba. The implication being, she does not have to swear for Mizonos leniently. Rabbanu, and the Rabbanu, the Tanakama, was saying she has to swear to, to even, for, even for the support. So it says the Gemara, the language is wrong. Masa Rav Shemin, the Mishnah was talking about whether the Yarshim make her make a shvuah. That's talking about as if the husband's dead. What are you talking about that? If the machlok is about Hanan, so it's got nothing to do the husband could be overseas. And it's a question of whether the court makes her make a shvuah. Yarshim implies the husband's dead. The way we're learning, just learning machlok, is the machlok says the husband is overseas. She's got the mizonos, does she have to make a shvuah? According to our explanation, it should have said, does Basin make, make her make a shvuah? Not should the, base, not should the Yarshim make her make a shvuah? So we need a different interpretation of what Rav Shimon is going on. Ella Amar Aha. He's going back in the earlier part of the mission. So this is something that we learned about yesterday. That there was a case where the terms of the marriage were that the husband exempted his wife from having to make a shvua that would be imposed by him or his yarshim about his property. Right? Let's say she was transacting things in the business and normally a husband has the right to make his manager make a shvua. But if he exempts her from the outset from ever having to make shvuas, then he doesn't have to. But we learned in the Mishnah, so when exactly is that set in? So we said, but if she would continue the business for the Arshim after the death, then the Arshim can make her make a shua. So the Mishnah said, after she became a widow, she went from the husband's grave back to her father's house, meaning she's not managing the property anymore. Even if she went back to her father-in-law's house, but she's not administrator of the property. So the Arshim cannot make an oath on her because she was exempted from making an oath about what she did in the husband's lifetime, and she's not working for them after the husband's death. So therefore, they, they cannot make her make a shavuah. But if she's administrating the property after the husband's death, meaning now she's working for the Yarshim, so Yarshim, the Yarshim can make her make a shavuah about what the management occurs, what happens in the, what, in the management after the husband's death. But they cannot make her make a shavuah about the past, about what happened while the husband was alive, because that she was exempt from. So that's what the Tanakhama said. Rabbi Shimon's referring back to that statement. For us, Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Shimon comes to say no. Whenever she's claiming suba, the heirs are able to make a shvua upon her. If she's not claiming suba, the heirs cannot make a shvua upon her. Meaning, what we're saying is like this: even if she's an administrator of the husband's estate after his death, they, it, it, since the husband exempted 
since the husband exempted her from making a shua, she can she does not have to make a shua about the, even the transaction that she does after the death. That's the point. And what's what's the idea? Reb Shimon holds that that in this case she's like a, she's like an, an agent of what for the father. That's basically the idea. The father was appointing her as to, to take care of the manage the business, and now that he dies, she's taking care of the business for the kids. So there's a special exemption. Uh, for making a shuas, Reb Shimon is, is leniently saying that she doesn't. Even if though the father, the father technically only patted her from shuas while it was she was managing the business for him, and now she's managing the business for the kids. But since she's kind of like the father shliach to manage the business for the kids, so therefore she's patted for making a shvua even in the future transactions that happen after. The Tanakama was saying she was only exempt from making the shvua for the for the, for the transactions that occurred during the lifetime of the father. And now Reb Shimon is saying, no, she's exempt from making the shvua even about transactions that take place after, after the death. And what that machlokas is something that we're familiar with. We saw in yesterday's Abashol Rabbanon. The machlokas Abashol Rabbanon is not as in a Mishnah. I'm sorry, we didn't see this in yesterday's daf. No, it's a mission again. It says, If let's say the father appointed an administrator of an estate, Yishava, he still has to swear to the orphans that he has that he didn't, you know, do anything wrong with their property. Meaning the basic idea, a manager shvua, an uh, has to make, even if he was appointed by a father. It doesn't make a difference because saw we're concerned he always may have taken something from the Somim, and therefore the Somim have the right when they grow up to make it make a shvua that he didn't take anything wrongly. We know Basin, but if the court appointed him, he doesn't have to swear. It's a special takana for the benefit of society because if, if nobody trusted the, the people from the court, so then nobody would ever uh, do it. You know, people are always suspecting them. Oh, they're taking money away from the Yisoyimim. And that's why we're making them make a shuvah. Nobody would accept the job. So therefore, a court-appointed Apatrabas doesn't have to make a shuvah. Just to the contrary. If Basin made an administrator Yishava, then he does have to swear. If they or the court suspects him that he took something, he does have to swear. But if it's the, or- the orphan's father appointed him administrator, then he does not have to swear. Um, and the idea is, is that if it was if it was the father's personal request that I want you to be administrator, we don't want a person to be deterred from accepting that shlichus because he might have to make a shvua down the line. So it's very interesting. They're arguing about which person do we have to protect more, the shliach based in or the shliach that the father that the father made. So now we would say the same thing. Reb Shimon here is Kabbashol. So that's why Reb Shimon is saying that this uh, this wife, she's like the father's agent to take care of the estate after after he dies for the Yisomim. So therefore she's exempt from making a shvua even for future business transactions. Rabbanah, Rabbanah, the Rabbanah of Mishnah, I like the Rabbanah of that Mishnah, that for the future dealings that she does for the kids, she does have to make a shvua because um, even though she's the agent of the father, that doesn't apply to her from swearing about the future business transactions. So we're coming out of Shimon as being more lenient than the Rabbanan. He's not requiring a shua from her about the future business transactions. Maskev Labai, if that's what we're saying, hi, kol The statement of Rabbi Shimon is off. The statement of Rabbi Shimon is whenever she claims the Ksuba, she has to make an oath, which is much he's saying like a Chumra. You're only saying now, no, I hold whenever... There, 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 there's a claiming of the ksuba, she has to make, she has to make an oath. I shouldn't have said that. I should have said if she claims her ksuba as an oath, meaning Rabbi Shimon is coming to say leniently. It's only with the ksuba she has to make an oath, but not about the, the manager, the manager shua. So he should have reflected a language which, which was mashma leniency, that I'm not saying as much shua as the, as, as the Tanakhama. So Ella, we need another explanation of Rabbi Shimon. Ella, my he's going back to this part of the Mishnah. Kasaf, love the husband, wrote in the document, his wife, Nedr, Shua, and the Eliyach, He's pottering her from Shavuos. He says, I don't have a vow or an oath upon you. He can't make an oath on her. But if he dies, his Yarshim could impose the oath. 
Whereas if he said, no, there's no Nedoshua for me or my, my, my Yarshim, you are your Yarshim, you can't make an oath. So Tanakama was saying that it depends on the, the language what was used. Whenever she claims her Ksuba from his, from his Yarshim, the Yarshim can impose an oath upon her. Even if the husband explicitly exempted her, from all oaths, even to them, Reb Shimon holds that when she comes to collect the Ksuba, she has to take the regular Shvua of anyone who comes to collect from Yarshim. That's the point. The point is that Tanakama holds if the husband exempted, explicitly exempted her from making Shvuas, even to his Yarshim, so then she doesn't have to make a Shvua. So Reb Shimon, no. If, you're, if, if she's being Tovaz or Ksuba from the Yarshim, she always has to swear. This is what we saw in yesterday's daf. The Abba holds... Shimon Kabashol holds that, that even if, you, if the woman was exempted by her husband, if she's collecting the Ksuba from his orphans, she always has to swear. Rabbana, 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 like the Rabbana of that Mishnah, will that if their husband pottered her, then she's pottered even from the, the, when she collects the Ksuba from the orphans. So finally, now we got it, what Pshad and the Machlokas is. Shimon is being more, is being more Machmer, even where the woman was exempted from making Shvuas, but that doesn't exempt her from the Shvua when she collects the Ksuba from the, from the kids. Part of the statement is good. Whenever she claims her Ksuba, the heirs, the heirs can make her make an oath. But what's with the second part? Why does he have to add, but if she's not Tavasa Ksuba, she doesn't have to? Let, let, what, what does Rabbi Shimon mean to tell us with that additional phrase? It sounds like there must be both points. Rabbi Shimon means to argue on the whole point of Rabbi Lazar and those who argued. Meaning, he's going back to the Mishnah we saw a couple of days ago. Um, we were talking about if, if, if a husband was appointing his wife as an administrator over you know, his business, and he did not exempt her from oaths, so where he could make the administrator's oath whenever he wants. And Rabbi Lazar was even more machmer. He said that, that even if he, she wasn't appointed administrator, but she still has to swear about the, the, the affairs in the kitchen. He's always managing the household. So now we're learning Rabbi Shimon is going all the way back onto this. And he's saying that um, whenever it's not a question of Ksuba, there's never an oath, meaning the woman is never chayv to a manager's oath that she did in the husband's lifetime, even if the husband appointed her and did not exempt her. And the idea is it's bad for the, since eventually there's going to be a Ksuba, a Ksuba oath, that exempts her from making any other oaths. So meaning this is so opposing what the, what the other Tanam held. The other Tanam were holding that the husband didn't exempt her from oaths, so she certainly has to make a shvua. She was a manager of the business. And Rabbi Lezer was saying even more chamer that she has to make a shvua. She has to make a shvua over the, the household affairs, things that were in the kitchen. That was, um, that was Rabbi Lezer. Rabbi Shimon is saying, no, 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 no. There's one thing that, that the wife has to make. She has to make the, she has to make the, uh, the shvua that, that she, didn't, she didn't already take sign for a shvua when she comes to collect the shvua from the yarshim. And that shvua is such a strong shvua that she has to make it even if it's just such a strong just to make it even if the, the husband exempted her from making it. So those are the two points that end up machlokas between Rabbi Shimon and the Rabbana. Is a woman who is exempted from making shvua still liable to make a shvua when she collects her shvua from Yarshim? That's question number one. And question number two is when she was not exempted, but she is working in the business or in the household, does she have to make a, uh, a shvua in that case? There, everybody except Rabbi Shimon holds she has to make a shvua, but... Um, but Rabbi Shimon would hold that she does not have to make a shvua.